So we're in the middle of this sermon series, and let me clarify a couple things. Uh, I'm not 29. You'll never catch me in skinny jeans, and I don't know that I have any catchphrases in this, nor do I have any book deals. <clears throat> but he's got some good points, doesn't he? As we hear Sung Chan Ra, who's uh, within our covenant uh, community. And, and what we, uh, we're in the second week of, of a th- right now it's three parts, and then we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back to some of this as we're looking at Ephesians. Um, and last week we really established the idea that the church is the hope of the world. And what I, what I don't mean by that, to just clarify, is I don't mean that we're the hope of the world because we're really good people. Uh, you and I are sinners. Let's just face the fact this morning. You and I are sinners, and we've been offered redemption, and the church is made up of the people who have said yes to that redemption. That's why the church is the hope of the world, not because we're really good by our very nature. We're, we're the ones who said yes to that redemption, and then we're gathered together by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes unity possible. Because of this, what we talked about last week was that the glory of God then is revealed when his people gather in worship, as we sing, as we shake hands even, as we're kind to one another, as we show hospitality, we're revealing God's glory and the hope that God has given us in a tangible, real way. And Paul writes in the end of Ephesians chapter 1 that the fullness of Christ is the church then. It's those people gathered together. And that's why we're the hope of the world. Not because we're really good, but because we're redeemed, gathered by the power of God's Spirit. Without the Spirit, we're a car without fuel. We might look good, but we're going nowhere. And so today, I want to continue on as we look at Ephesians. And, and what we've been responding to, in a sense, is, is the ongoing conversations that go on about divisions that exist in our everyday world. You know, we hear a lot about racial division right now, and it's a very ever-present problem. But if we're going to have an answer to the divisions outside, it needs to start in here. That's where we've been going with this, and that's where we'll continue going. And I want to point out this morning that peace among God's people breaks down the walls of division. And I mean peace in that sense of shalom, that peace that we see through Scripture, God's highest good for us. Not just the absence of conflict, but health and wholeness as God intended. That's what I mean by peace. Peace among God's people breaks the walls of division. And the portrait that we looked at last week and that we hang all of this on actually doesn't come out of Ephesians. It's what Ephesians is describing, how to live out. But we see it in Revelation 7-9 which uh, Dr. Ra pointed out. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They're the redeemed. They were wearing white robes, and they were holding palm branches in their hands. They're the ones crying out, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the portrait that we see at the end. Paul is describing to us in Ephesians, as we see it in other places in the New Testament, how to live into that reality. But it it asks a couple questions of us as we look at that. The first question that we have to ask this morning is, am I actually part of that multitude? Will I be there, standing with the white robe, on that day with every tribe, tongue, language, and people? Salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. That's an important proclamation we need to make this morning. And if that's not a decision that you've made... Today is a great day to accept that redemption and be part of the multitude 
That's the first question. Am I actually going to be part of that multitude? And the second question is really for us. As we consider that multitude, the hope that we have set before us, are we actively living as that multitude now? Are we actively working that way? Are we actively preparing ourselves for the day when we do get to stand there? Are we, are we looking around and seeing other people around our community who need to know Jesus, who maybe don't look quite like us, but they could be part of that multitude? Are we looking around within our own congregation to see who's a part of that multitude and actively making sure that we live into that reality now? Those are the questions that are before us today. Because if something changes in me because I'm redeemed, it, ha- it better change in us because we're redeemed. Because the power of the Spirit is working through us. And while I think the New Testament has a response to the idea of consumer Christians, it's a kind of a foreign concept to the way of the church that you run into in, in uh, early Christianity. The idea that people would just come within a body of believers and take and take and not be a part of it is not what the church is. We're not just takers. As I tell you, put on your participants if you're in the, in the body of Christ. right? If you say yes to Jesus, you're saying yes to his church. He died for his church too. If you say yes to Jesus, but you say no to his church, you need to take a moment of pause and go back and say, have I really said yes to Jesus? I think it's that significant of an issue. The other thing about this, when we talk about unity, I think we can easily have a cynical attitude as well. Um, I remember the Coke commercial from the 80s, you know, that we are the world kind of thing, and we sometimes have this cynical attitude of, oh, this is a great dream, but it's never going to be a reality. You know, it's just going to be a Willie Nelson unity concert or something like that, and then we all go about our own ways at the end. We want to think that unity is going to come easily sometimes, though, but it doesn't. It really doesn't. I was reminded as I was thinking about unity this week of an anecdote that floats around in pastor circles um, of the guy who's on a deserted island, been there for 20 years, and finally rescue comes, and the rescuers are standing there on the beach as they're about to take him off the island, and they say, well, can you tell me about what those three huts are on that, uh, up on the hill there? And he says, oh, the one on the left is my house, and the one on the right is my church. And they say, okay, what's the one in the middle? Oh, that's the church I used to go to. The the division runs strong sometimes, I think. And we can even have a divided heart, not even just be divided with other people. Division runs stronger than we realize sometimes. And Paul highlights the problem of our division right there at Ephesians. So if if you've got your Bible with you or your phone, go to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. And we're going to start at verse 1 today, a novel idea. Verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, As for you... You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And we should point out that, and I'm indebted to Professor Klein Snodgrass of North Park Seminary for this imagery here. He talks about that Paul is bringing to us a vertical relationship and a horizontal relationship here. This vertical relationship is what we see here, that the relationship between humans and God, you and, you and me and God, is broken by sin. And we should recognize that when we say sin, um, we're not simply talking about breaking a rule. Yeah, that's a, a component of it. It's breaking a relationship is what's behind that. That's what's so significant about it. We're breaking our relationship with God through sin. 
And so that vertical relationship has been broken because we're all involved in that sin in one way or another. And it's also hit us in one way or another. And it compounds the problem of sin so that we can't fix this thing ourselves. The vertical relationship is messed up. Through the work of Jesus Christ, though, we're informed that the vertical relationship with God can be repaired. That's where redemption is offered or reconciliation is offered to us. It's out there. We simply have to accept that gift. Of reconciliation and then live into that gift of reconciliation. Again, Klein Snodgrass points out when he's uh, commenting on this passage in Ephesians, he says the human plight, sin really and its separation, is caused by separation from God. He says life comes from him and is to be enjoyed in his presence. The only solution to the plight then is proximity to God and Christ is the only one who takes us there. That's why all of this matters in Jesus Christ, because Christ Christ is the one who gives us that proximity where it was broken before. In separation, we have problems. But one of the deceiving things about that separation and that vertical relationship is that we often feel free when we're actually in captivity in those cases. We often feel free in those cases. But I would suggest to you that, that that freedom to do what you want, which is what we think, right? I've, I've talked to people who say, I don't want to believe in God, um, and they've become atheists or something like that, because I don't want Big Brother breathing over my shoulder, telling me what I should do and not do in life. I want to make my own decisions. Well, let me just point out that it sounds like we're free, and it sounds like that's, that's just glorious liberty right there, but the freedom to do what you want because you want is a rotten ethic. I had a friend... A uh, Christian friend talked to me a number of years ago. He was working on a construction site. He was working with another guy who was advocating this sort of free world view of, I don't need to believe in God. I can make my own decisions. It's, it's right because I chose to do it. And I said, did you punch him in the face? And he said, no. Why would I do that? I said, well, you can also make those decisions too. You could make the decision that that's what you wanted to do right then. And he has no recourse at that point, right? I'm not advocating violence. I didn't really tell him to do that. But you get the point, right? If you're free to make whatever decision you want, it sounds like the greatest liberty of all, but everybody else is free to do the same thing. It's a problem all of a sudden. It's a pretty pathetic ethic at that point. So the vertical relationship is broken, and it can be repaired through Jesus Christ, through that reconciliation that only Jesus brings. And what Paul brings us into then in Ephesians, and we'll go to verse 11 here, is that he says, but also when that vertical relationship is fixed, the horizontal relationship needs to be repaired too. That's, that goes with it, hand in hand, that we would be in unity with those who are now in unity with God through Christ. So if you go to verse 11 of chapter 2, if I can find my place again here, verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, and remember he's writing to both Jew and Gentile, He says, those of you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We can see that uh, he's talking about those who are inside and those who are outside. Those who are inside the promise, they're marked by that. 
but it was really an external marking to demonstrate what holiness looked like in real, tangible terms. That's why he's talking about the circumcision. Uh, holiness itself, of course, to be in proximity to God, we would need to be holy as God is holy. The law is trying to give us a, a vision of what that would look like, but we're always going to fall short, and that's what Israel did. They always fell short. But it was even built into the very structure of temple and the temple practice for Israel. So that if you looked at the temple, you would see that there was an outer court, especially the temple of Jesus' day, it was very visible. The outer court, the court of the Gentiles, anybody could enter that part, a very large sort of colonnade area. But then there was a wall with openings in the wall that you could get through, but you could only go through at that point if you were Jewish, men or women, and that was the court of women. From there, you could only go really into the temple complex uh, unless you were a man, and then, of course, you've got to be a priest, and then you've got to be the high priest to get into the very holy of holies where God's Shekinah presence is. And even at the court of the Gentiles, you have this wall of uh, dividing wall that Paul would point out, uh, or something like it that Paul points out in verse 14. And on that sign, it really said... Uh, no man of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. And whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. That's a significant dividing line, wouldn't you agree? That you can't go past that if you're a Gentile, otherwise death ensues. It's a very physical way to demonstrate what holiness looks like. Paul's alluding to that world. Saying formally, that's where you were. You guys were outside of this, without going through some serious uh, hoops to become Jewish, essentially. And what looked like it took secondary importance in the Old Testament, the inclusion of Gentiles into God's plan, now takes primary importance. Paul says, this was always part of the plan, but now look at what Jesus has done to make sure it happens. Look at what Jesus broke down, and now you need to live that out in your community, in the body of believers. And in verse 14, it says, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now that sign isn't there anymore. Now Jew and Gentile can walk together because they're equal at the foot of the cross. They both have access to that reconciliation, and when they take it, there should be unity within the body. And we could ask, well, okay, so we broke down one dividing wall. In our culture, I think somebody could legitimately ask, does breaking down one wall of hostility just create another? You know, you've broken down Jew and Gentile. What about Christian, non-Christian? Because we, we live in an age where people want to kind of include themselves. Oh, I like Jesus, and so I'm, I'm kind of sort of churchy and sort of part of the body. But I'm not really committed to him because I also like some of the other things that are out there. And, and again, we're our own boss. That's... And imagine, uh, it's, it's back, going back to that sort of ethic I was talking about of, of being in control versus being under the lordship of Jesus Christ. There's a difference. Imagine, uh, if you will, you're standing at a chain-link fence. I've said yes to Jesus. I stand under his lordship. And on the other side of the fence is someone who says, yeah, I like him, but I also like a whole lot of other things. I'm, I'm, I'm going to choose my own way. You're in bondage on your side of the fence. And you look around and you see there's this kind of razor wire at the top of this fence. And you say, well, I actually don't think you're as free as you think you are on your side of the fence. And you both take a step back. And you realize they're in a prison yard and you're on the outside. Because it looks free. And it looks like the other person's in bondage in those cases. But who's really free? We're, we're actually free under Jesus Christ 
to live in to become this multitude we're talking about, to live into the hope that he has, we are free under Christ to do his will. And it's actually in our best interest to do that. Peace among God's people breaks down the walls of division. When we can find unity within us, we can start pointing other people towards that same unity, towards that same hope, to become part of that same multitude. And if we have peace, we can be peace in a world entrapped by sin. We can be the people who step back and say, you're actually in bondage. Can I help bring you to my side of the fence? Can I help bring you through? Out of sin, strife, division, brokenness, selfishness. That's who we're called to be. And if we can't do it inside, we're going to have a hard time doing it outside of the doors of the church. And so that's what Paul is talking about. The church is really the laboratory within God's kingdom to become that multitude, to grow in unity as uh, the body of Christ. And we need to work at getting it right within the doors of the church so that we can bring others in to that family and into that multitude. And so I want to give you, as, as a sort of practical outworking of this, something that within our own denomination is used. Uh, it's called the fivefold test. And I want to just walk through these five categories because I think it's a very practical way to look at how to live out these Ephesians texts within our context here. If you're in a small group, uh, these are part of the small group questions this week to actually walk through them. Um, and if you don't understand the question when you go through it in your small group, just go with your best interpretation and you'll be fine. But there are five P's here, and uh, they are used within our denomination at various levels, and they're intended for churches, congregations to use them as well. I think they're very helpful categories to think through. To take seriously the mission of Christ and the unity of Christ's church together. Right? So I've adjusted the questions for congregational use that we would look at what Paul has said about Jew and Gentile, about uh, unity among the body, and then understand our own context and how that plays out in this world of division. The first thing that we run into is uh, the issue of population. You can actually, if you have your small group notes in your bulletin, it'll be on the screen, but you can see them there too if you want to write notes. Uh, It talks about population. Is our congregation, is First Covenant Church, reaching increasing numbers of people among increasing numbers of populations? If you look at our city, this this is where you kind of, take a look at the demographics of our city and our neighborhood and say, do we even reflect that a little bit, a lot? Are we beyond the demographics? Um, You can have a a robust conversation about, you know, how much we should represent that. That's, but the question is pretty important still. Um, If you're a church that's in a neighborhood that's all 20s and 30s and you're all people in your 60s and 70s, you know, that's one of those easy answers. Well, maybe we should probably look a little more like our neighborhood, do some more reaching out is what that means. So it's a good question to ask. Do we at all look like the city we live in as far as who we are? Do we have some of those different backgrounds and, and such in here? And it's, it's interesting to consider then what would have happened in the Ephesian context if Jew and Gentile decided we weren't going to come together. We're going to lead parallel lives. So the Jewish crowd says we can only do this church thing this specific Jewish way. And the Gentile says, well, we're obviously out, so we can only do it in this specific way. Sort of like Dr. Seuss, the Sneetches, right? The star bellies and the ones without stars on their belly. We can only live that way, and and we can't live the other way. So you guys get the 8 o'clock slot, and we'll take the 1030 slot, and we'll share the same building, but we're not going to speak the same language. And the problem is, of course, there are times when that kind of thing can go on, 
But if that's all there is within the church, then we end up actually focusing too easily on what divides rather than what unites us as the people. Aren't we thankful? Because I'm guessing most of us are Gentiles in the room by birth. Aren't we thankful that they figured it out? Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. Thanks be to God. They worked it through, and it was not easy. Uh, Second, participation is the next question that comes up for the next category. This is, a, again, a congregational question. Are we finding ways to engage life together through ministry, events, service, and fellowship? It's a question of who can participate and who can't. Are we, are we micro-focused on only working with one group within the congregation, or do we have things that go on for youth and for seniors and all kinds of different people in between uh, to make sure that people do have a place where they can engage in worship? I, I remember when I was in between my first and my second church, I was calling different churches and, and doing job interviews. You know, you used to call a search committee over the phone, and if you've never had the joy of doing that, it's different in every situation. You don't know if you're talking to the two people who remembered to show up or 24 people or whatever it is that night. And, and you're on a phone, and you've got a conference call on the other end, and it's hard to hear everybody. It's, it's interesting to do those things. It was much easier here because we did it by video. I liked seeing your faces. That was nice. But, but back then, it was just calling. And, and I remember this was just one case among many where you'd talk to a church, and there were churches church that had kind of grown in age but not added to the, the younger end of the spectrum. There are a lot of those out there, and they're church between 55 and 70 or so uh, as their average sort of age. And they wanted to hire somebody to bring in young people, right? That's always the solution, hire a young guy to bring in young people. So they were talking to me about that. That was the position. And, and you could tell without them realizing what they were saying is we want young people, we want people in their 20s and 30s who have kids to come into the church, but the way they framed everything, we want them to look like they're 60, to give like they're 60, to dress like they're 60, to worship like they're 60. We don't want to change anything to do this. And we want everything to stay the same, but we want the energy to come in. You could hear that through the questions and, and through all of this. And, and at that point, you have, to, you have to ask, are we just gearing our ministry towards one segment of the population that we have? Or are we really including people in the fullness of the body of Christ? The third area is power. The, the power structure in the church, is it geared so that it actually hears the voices of a great majority of people? Like your leadership team, your ministry leaders. Is it all men? Is it all women? Is it all men of a certain age? Is it all women of a certain age? Is it mixed up? Do you have different ages? Those kinds of questions. And, and is it uh, among a diverse population if the congregation is among a diverse population? Now, this is not a question about quotas. It's a question about making sure that we make the right decisions for the congregation and for uh, the outreach within the congregation. So, for instance, if you have a ministry team that's planning an event, but nobody has small kids and they plan the event for 8 o'clock, they might not, and it's for kids or for families, they might not get families with small kids who have bedtimes at 8 o'clock, right? Or they might not get people who don't drive after dark. But sometimes we miss those details when we don't have sort of the right voices speaking in to remind us of the fullness of who we have. These are important questions to make sure we live in unity together and live out what Paul is telling us in Ephesians. The fourth category is pace setting. You notice they're all P's. They must have been come up by a pastor is probably who came up with them. With addition, you like that? I could do that. With additional perspectives, burdens, and gifts in our midst, what new ministry opportunities are we as First Covenant now better positioned to strengthen and initiate? That is, when new people come into our doors, 
Are we ready to incorporate them and the gifts they bring in a way that they bring the gifts? One of the dangers that we can face as an established congregation, we've been here for 125 years, uh, no founding members though out there as far as I can tell, but we've been here 125 years, and we've been here for a long time, many of us have been here for a long time, we know each other really well, but we run the danger of institutionalization. Where new people come in, and the people that have been here are tired, and we say, I see energy rather than their gifts. Right? You can come in and serve in our way. We'll tell you where to use those, those, that energy, but we're not actually listening to new ways that they might bring of how to use those gifts. I can fall into this danger as much as anybody. So we have to ask, okay, when new people come into our midst, are we open to what they bring with them? and the gifts and abilities they bring that may open new horizons for us. And finally, the fifth category, which I want to go into next week, is purposeful narrative. So how do the stories of new backgrounds become incorporated into our overarching history? How are we changed? Because people join us. Because people bring uh, the different stories that they grew up with and have come to the foot of the cross and have been changed and redeemed and then come and join us. How are we different because they're here? Because they become a part of this unified body of Christ. I get excited about this stuff. I was talking to a, a brother from Africa uh, this, um, this last week who's a pastor, and we were talking about the possibility of uh, some areas where, where uh, our ministries could, could meet in certain ways. It was fun and exciting to hear a different perspective from a different world, from a believer from another place who's here, and get to just, just interacting with somebody who is different and sees the world differently, but it's the same Jesus Christ that we worship that we love, that we want to serve. The same Jesus that is our Lord. I, I was thankful this week as well. Um, I, I've been a little frustrated in Lincoln because sometimes I feel like more than other places I've served, each of us pastors are hyper-focused on our congregations and we're not looking to each other at all. And I was thankful that I was invited to a pastor's group this week, about 40, 50 pastors and spouses that met together, and they just prayed for one another for an hour. That's all we did. It was brilliant. Because we're better together, the person who organized it said. Amen to that. We're better together. We need to make sure that, uh, that we're looking towards the body of Christ broadly, but looking within our own congregation to make sure we don't miss the gifts and abilities and the things that draw us together in unity by the power of the Spirit that make us the hope of the world. And we can put on uh, too easily, I think, when we talk about this unity, like I said at the beginning, we can have too easily a spirit of cynicism, I think, about it. Like we're in the United Colors of Benetton kind of thing, and we're, we're just going to put it all together. The Coke commercial I talked about from the 80s. But Christ compels us to peace. So we need to put any cynicism and doubts aside for the unity of the body, because it's the Holy Spirit who does it. It's the Holy Spirit who draws us together. That vertical relationship that we come to know Jesus Christ and we're reconciled with him. And then we're reconciled with his people. That's significant and it needs to happen in here because if it doesn't happen in here, it's not going to happen out there. We can't human solve a God-sized problem like this. Peace among God's people breaks down the walls of division. I want to pray uh, before we go to the table, and I want to pray, and as I do that, I want to ask uh, that we would commit ourselves. If you've never said yes to Jesus, I'm going to ask if you want to this morning, and if you uh, uh, want to make sure that you commit with me, I'm going to commit to being living actively as God's multitude in this place so that we have an answer out there for the divisions that are there. 
I'm going to ask you to commit to that as well this morning. Two simple commitments, that we commit to Jesus Christ. If you never have, you can renew that this morning. And that we would commit to be his multitude in this place, living in unity as his people. To experience the fullness of the gifts he's given us so that we can take that peace out into the world. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come together in prayer in the unity of your spirit this morning, and we're thankful to be here. We're thankful that your presence doesn't just live in the Holy of Holies, but lives within us. We're thankful this this morning that your Holy Spirit is here and gathers us together into a task that we could never do alone. We're thankful that your good news is indeed good news in this world, provides freedom in this place. And God, we ask this morning that you would give us that freedom in Christ. If you're sitting here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be forgiven of sin, I want to put myself under the lordship and guidance and power of Jesus Christ, then this morning, take that moment to pray that. And Father, as we sit here this morning, maybe we be encouraged by the many ways that you've used the gifts that we have to bring for your glory. We sit here in a church with a legacy of 125 years called by you into this place. May we continue to live doing your mission in this city that we love. May we recognize that you love this city first. You love us and you loved us first and have called us to yourself. We're the fullness of your body, the hope of the world. May we this morning commit to you that we will be that fullness within this place, living as your multitude, not having blinders on to the way that you've gifted us and drawn us together. And Father, may you take us out of this place to be your peace wherever we go this week. We commit that to you this morning, that we want to be your peace in the world. Your shalom, where there's brokenness, we bring wholeness because you've brought it to us and we take it with us. Father, by the power of your spirit, we offer ourselves to you. We offer our brokenness to you that you would make it whole. We offer our worship to you that it would be holy. We pray that you'd make us your peace. In your name we pray. Amen.